Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome back to the show. This is part two of the life of writer and woman about town Dorothy Parker, whose work with Vanity Fair, Vogue, and The New Yorker, not to mention her downtime with those wits and wags over at the Algonquin Hotel, have made her the toast of New York, and in fact the whole country. Her personal life, though, has taken a turn for the worse. Separated from her husband and at the end of a relationship with Charles MacArthur that resulted in a suicide attempt, her friend Robert Benchley has told her to pull herself together. Our Dorothy is kind of at a crossroads. What to do? What to do? And now, on with the show. At this point in her life, she's made peace with Charles MacArthur. She kind of had to because he and Robert Benchley moved in together in Brett Benchley's city apartment. They became roommates and really buddied around. They got along famously. And romance. Romance. Total romance. But Dorothy didn't want to give up Benchley, so she had to make peace with Charles, even though she was bitter towards him. <sighs> well, do you blame her? Mm -hmm. uh, but she made peace with him. And, to put it delicately, she had relations with several men of varied degrees of marriage. <laughs> well, hearing friends talking about Paris and all the art and literature going on there, particularly this fellow named Ernest Hemingway, who had a very realistic style, just like hers, that she really admired, she found a rich man to fall in love with her. It is just that easy and, frankly, just that one-sided, and went off to Europe to live the easy life for a while. Now, Benchley went along. What chaperone? I don't even how even he know. talked his wife into letting him letting him go. I don't even know that she had any power. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Well, he went and asked. I mean, she, he needed permission. Like you said, quotes. But I think it's a formality. She, I think he would have gone. Yeah. Oh, he probably good point. One of my favorite things about that departure is that Dorothy Parker leaned off the boat, dangerously so, to yell at her friends down below, and she goes, "Marlena Dietrich's on." the boat but my suitcase didn't make it <laughs> i don't know if marlena dietrich was really on the boat right? i have no idea so she met up with some literary giants there um hemingway of course the object of her mental affection she thought that f scott fitzgerald was trying too hard to be funny he might be good on paper but in person he is a dead fish and she also said that his wife zelda was card carrying crazy which I think yeah. most people would agree with. Yeah, she nailed that one. But she had some sort of respect for old Hemingway there. You know, the most interesting man. And all <laughs> super macho, really not into all of her melodrama. I can tell you that right now. I don't think the admiration was mutual. But they toured around a bit. Now, her whole reason for going was to live in Europe and write. So she didn't write in Paris. She didn't write in the south of France. She didn't write in Spain. Hemingway had glorified the bullfighting. She was very excited to go see it, except mm, they actually killed the bull. The whole point was to kill the bull. She was not ready for that. So she had an excuse for not writing in Spain. Yeah, she covered half of Spain with vomit, I think. <laughs> so uh, Hemingway, when Dorothy was not at a party in which he was present, he had written sort of a mean poem about her, something about her ruining his typewriter by having used it. And um, people were not quite sure how to take that. And as a member of the Algonquin Roundtable, dishing it out and taking it, etc., Dorothy Parker, but she was so mad that she saw him way down, two stories worth of down. She was on a boat. He was not on the boat. She threw her typewriter at his head. <laughs> From a couple of stories in the air. Didn't. I mean, her aim, not so good. She's not the sportif type. No. <laughs> Luckily for all of literature, they, she didn't get him with it. No. Though, later she would write good reviews about him and stuff. I mean, you know, you got to express yourself. Yeah, even if personally they didn't quite get along at this point. She had to respect his... Writing. Anyway, who needed him? No. Her book of collected poetry came out in 1926 to wide acclaim, and perhaps more importantly, many sales. This book of dark poetry that the New York Times said was, quote, tarred with a bright black authenticity. <laughs> yes. But other critics <laughs> called her a poser. Maybe that was... More appropriate than they realized, she'd put on this air of cheerfulness all day, or actually all night, you know. Yeah. <laughs> all day, we're in bed. Um, but inside, she was lonesome as heck, and so she simultaneously doubted herself and thought she was the greatest freaking thing on earth. She was at the center of everything and everyone, but didn't really like people that much. She's very intelligent 
and made epically poor decisions. Sounds like me. <laughs> Point of fact. <laughs> Actually, there was a lot of points in her life that you came to mind. I mean, good points, you know. Smart and witty. Note to self. I have not had affairs with men. No, 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 no. That part, no, no, no. no assorted no, levels no, of no. <laughs> marriage. I think you would have, um, would you have gotten along with her? I could have held my own with her. I think so. Here's the thing, though. I think we're a lot alike. And I uh, I almost think people that are too similar don't get along that much. I, I agree. And so I wonder, we probably wouldn't get along, but we'd probably be amiable swordsmen, like at the end of the fencing rails where you nod at your opponent and it's like, on guard. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Yeah. She would have taken one look at me, dismissed me as a suburban housewife, and... Probably not even talk to me. <laughs> and her loss, Susan. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so after a year and a half of living abroad, she's finally thrown together her first poetry collection, and it's a success. She decides she's not suited to European life. And, and she dumped that rich guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but she dumped him ahead of time. It was like, oh, and then kind of had to take up a little collection to get home, kind of, yeah. you know, because her checks hadn't arrived for the royalties yet. <laughs> but, you know. And even if they had, would she been able to spend them or do anything wisely with them. She's yeah. not the best money manager. At this point, she moves back to New York and easily resumes her speakeasy and cocktail party ways. She wrote a short story that received great acclaim. It received the O. Henry Prize for Literature, and it's called Big Blonde, and it tells the story... Let's see. How do I summarize it? The story of a person who'd been a party girl and was now kind of on the edge of aging out, <laughs> of being able to pull that off successfully, shall I say. That's pretty much Yeah. And kind of that internal conflict, like a woman without any man. In that time, in that place with no inner resources, who had relied on her looks and her comedy to get her by. Right. Now, you know, and I know that Dorothy Parker is neither big nor a blonde, but still, no. there were elements of that story that were so true. And she wrote it, she was recovering from appendicitis, so she was stuck in bed, and she must have felt it, you know. Nothing like a major surgery to make you feel old, you know, and realize your, accept your mortality. A lot, her life, in her stories and in her poetry, it's, it's very based on her personal experiences. I love what she said. It, you know, she had dreamed of writing a novel, but she just couldn't, she just wasn't the novel writer. She said, I'm a short distance writer. <laughs> I can totally, that I can relate to. That's awesome. Because <laughs> I write 600 word columns every week. 600, that's it. 600 words. Short stories always receive more admiration for me because you've got to cut it down to the mm -hmm. basics. Mm -hmm. There's none of this rambling talking about geese in the winter sky or the weather. No, you got to get it right in and you got to get right back yep. out. Uh, so in 1928, she and Eddie finally divorced. They actually would never see each other again. Five years later, he dies from an overdose of sleeping powder. So husband number one commits suicide. Mm. He's, he's out of the picture. Although she keeps his last name because Mrs. Parker is so a good last name. Yes. <laughs> So she uh, is producing more and more, but people had to get after her to work, like literally come over, hand her a bottle of whiskey, and stand over her and keep redirecting her kind of thing. She hated being on a schedule, and she was never what one might say was a prolific writer. She always would say she was a perfectionist. She'd write down five words and then take away seven of them. You know, she was kind of more of an artist than a craftsman. There were other people that could sit down. I'm going to crank out the thing. It's due tomorrow. Blah, 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 blah. She would agonize, and she'd rather miss a deadline than turn in anything that wasn't meeting her really perfectionist standards. Right. And then she kept saying, I'm betraying my gift with all this drinking. And then, you know, cheers. Yeah. <laughs> I drink because I'm thirsty, she said, when people would ask her. Well, you know, the Madonna of her time had to keep up her public persona, out and about with her beautiful gay male friends. The subject of at least two plays that featured characters so close to her actual self that Dorothy Parker once said she was afraid to publish an autobiography for fear she'd be accused of plagiarism. <laughs> College students all over the country were revering her work as if she were William Shakespeare, which they still sort of do, by the way, which perversely she had contempt for. So, you know, two more collections had come out by now, and the praise factory was in the full-on position Boyfriends, who followed her usual type, as she said, handsome, ruthless, and stupid. 
That's not a recipe for success, Dorothy Parker. (laughs) (laughs) The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. (laughs) Until, at age 40, much to the surprise of her friends, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she married, again, at the age of 40, Alan Campbell, a handsome, of course, 29-year-old actor, a sort of failed actor, really, who had dreams of being a scriptwriter in Hollywood, and her friends were all doubtful that he wasn't thinking of his career here, you know? But the fact is, he was nice to her. He handled all the yucky parts of life. Yeah, he got... He got her. You know, he understood her. She understood him. They got along very well. I This is backtracking just a little bit, but I love that she showed up to her 40th birthday party at a speakeasy wearing a football helmet. <laughs> yes! You know, I love celebrating milestones in some way. That's I thought that was great. Oh, he's so much younger than her, though. He's 29 to her yeah. 40, I know. But he also had... Uh, Jewish-Scottish parents, just like she did. What are the chances? (laughs) And he had a history of dating and taking care of older women. He liked to buy the food. He would make sure she wore a coat, ward off people she didn't want to see. It's always good to have somebody at the door to say, too busy, she's not home. It kind of gave her a makeover. I mean, he he was in charge of, and she let him dress her, um, changed her makeup. Changed her hairstyle to the hairstyle that we see she wore for the rest of her life. The bangs and the up twist in the back. Well, and he encouraged her to work. Like, yeah. really and genuinely kept her from being lonely. Seemed to be working. Everyone was kind of amazed because he was from the South and had an accent. And she had been notorious for making fun of Southern accents. She said, well, that just makes you sound stupid. Why is this one? I'm trying to remember this, this quote that she used to do all the time, like, um... A straight line is the shortest distance between two points. And she'd say it like in that accent. She goes, don't that sound stupid? She would always say that her husband said eggs with too many vowels. Like, I... Somewhat true to what everyone had thought of him, he did get jobs. Obviously, with her name as a draw, as a writing partner, he got a contract in Hollywood. That's the place to be. That's the next big thing. Now, their salaries were not exactly equal, and this is a yay women. She made a thousand dollars a week to his one hundred and fifty. You gotta come with the name, baby. Yeah, you sure do. Well, off to this epically crazy and awesome place called the Garden of Allah, which I will put pictures of on Pinterest. Crazy <laughs> assemblage of cottages and these weird pools and outdoor tables, like an only in Hollywood sort of place. Benchley was there too. Benchley turns up everywhere. Oh, the Hollywood's the making of Benchley. Where over the course of the next five or so years, they got writing credits, Alan and Dorothy did, for 15 movies. Um, the only one you might know now, maybe, is the original A Star Was Born, 1937, but I think you only know it because Barbara Streisand read it. Right. And, but she got an Academy Award nomination yeah. for that script, so. Alan loved this. Oh, yeah. This was his Algonquin roundtable. I mean, people knew him. He knew everyone. He was working in the center of the action. He was in the in crowd. He looked California, too. He was tan with, like, he had just come in from the tennis courts, this big smile. I mean, he's an actor, too, so he had the good actor, good looks, for sure. You know, and then she's very New York. Well, Dorothy Parker took to knitting at script meetings because she was so bored. This is like the wearing the celery around your neck thing. I'm going to sit here and indicate that I am not with this program, but you can keep a talking. Knitting. She took up. That's okay. And she was dismayed at what she called this compost heap we're creating out here. But, you know, she's the one making all the money. She compared the Hollywood crowd to gold miners who'd hit it big. Uneducated and showy and loud and pretty shallow. What? In Hollywood? (laughs) That's how you make friends. (laughs) New Hollywood, honestly, at least from all the things I'm reading here, remind me of Gilded Age, new richness. Like, um... You know, everything was bigger, and the cars had to be showy, and the, if it's Clarabeau, the roofs had to have, or the ceilings had to have mirrors on them, and the pools had to be giant, and, and, you know, Dorothy Parker had hung out with old money. Right. 
in New York with the Algonquin associations. So she had seen how the actual aristocracy of America lived, and this was not it. Although there was way more money flowing out here. You know, by the end of this whole Hollywood peak time, she was making $5,200 a week during the Depression. One of her hats cost $87, which could feed <laughs> 870 people bred. Now, in the state where all the people from the Dust Bowl are migrating, you know, think of those Dust Bowl pictures. They're living in the same state where she's got her $82 hat on. She lived in a marble-floored mansion with a butler and a cook and a maid, and the whole place just started to wear on her. The sarcasm started leaking out of her good manners again, fair enough. But I'm sorry to say, she started being very mean to her husband, Alan, in public. You know there's arguing. Some people love that. They thrive on it. Yeah. They think it's super awesome. Banter. Mm-hmm. But Dorothy acted contemptuous of him and embarrassed him, and he really, at this point, tried very hard to pretend it was all in good fun. Dorothy Parker destroys all the good things in her life, or the good people. She found solace in left-wing politics. Now, this isn't the first time that she's run across uh, left-wing politics. Back in the 20s, she was drawn to the case of Sacco and Vanzetti. This was two people who were sentenced to death in Massachusetts for killing two factory workers. And she firmly believed that it was unjust. She believed it so much that she went to Boston and marched and got arrested, but it kind of sparked her left-wing drive, that whole political aspect of of her life, which we don't really think about too much. Now, there were protests all over the world at this. Uh, A lot of people thought Sacco and Vanzetti had been railroaded. Mm -hmm. To me, looking at the evidence now, I just really don't know. I mean, they had obscure bullets that hadn't been seen really ever, and he had spare ones of those in his pocket. Like, no one had these bullets except the dead people in their bodies. And this guy in his pocket. (laughs) So, you know, maybe circumstantial, but I don't pretend to know the details either. It's Uh just like there was some really epically specific evidence that makes me think, hmm, that's all. That's as far as I delve into. I I know the Sacco and Vanzetti people are going to call us. No, and that's okay. As a matter of fact, what we'll put a link to, you know, it's useful to get to know a little more about that kind of thing, but really we can't follow all the rabbit holes or we would never get through anything. Oh, and her life is a bunch of rabbit holes. I was shocked at how much information there was. I thought we'd just write her, round table, Hollywood. The end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She met and was very impressed with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and particularly with Eleanor Roosevelt, who she called, with absolutely no sarcasm, the most beautiful person I have ever met. One of the most interesting people that she met, as far as playing a role in her life, was Lillian Hellman, who she was a writer, and they started a friendship while she was in Hollywood that would last for the rest of Dorothy's life, except they were kind of frenemies. They were definitely frenemies. They had nothing in common but communist politics and the fact that they could both use a typewriter. (laughs) Uh, They didn't have the same friends really at all. Um, Yeah, the whole left-wing politics really brought them together, I think. But they stayed together. I mean, they stayed connected when they could have separated easily. I think it's nice to have an adversary that is your equal. I just think you kind of, like, without Draco, what's Harry Potter? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like you're It's a foil. Well, it's like having your Facebook friends list be balanced, (laughs) which some people do, like me, um, because they want to see everything that's, you know, what the left thinks and what the right thinks. You know, I want the opinions. I want to hear it. Well, so Dorothy called herself a communist, though she hardly qualified from a real communist perspective. So what Dorothy admired, I can't speak for Lillian Hellman and friends, but what Dorothy admired really, I think, was that parties and the president's concern for the underdog. She was never comfortable making so much money during the Depression. She'd look around at the struggle, you know, and she did have friends that threw champagne and caviar off people's boats and called for a revolution, which seems to me to be the funniest kind of tea party with its pinky out I have ever heard of. (laughs) But Dorothy Parker was mostly just about helping the underdog. She always liked being contrary anyway, and she was so good at giving speeches and raising money for labor unions and for the anti-Nazi league. This is the 30s. Again, we're ahead of the curve on this. She's always ahead of the curve. Oh, yeah. Her whole oh, life. Oh, yeah. And if communists are far left, you know, the Nazis are at least partially on the right. Far right. <laughs> they don't qualify as being exactly on the right, but yeah. they're rightish. Yeah. Rightish. And at the time, that's they look opposites. Yes. So she had a sense of purpose again. The actual radicals 
did doubt her dedication. After all, she was known to cross a waiter's picket line to get hold of a martini. But she was a very useful person to have in their pockets. Okay, we need the necessities in life. And for Dorothy Parker, a martini was that necessity. Can we go back a tiny bit to some domestic matters? Sure. Okay. Dorothy and Alan bought a big old house in Pennsylvania, way out on over a hundred acres for what was then the exorbitant price of $4,500. Now keep in mind, makes that by Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> to her, yeah. it's nothing. Yeah, and what is the, what is the draw of country life for a woman who grew up in the city, who doesn't really like the, the citification of Hollywood, but she's somehow drawn to the romance of life in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Well, I just don't know. But what I want is a time machine because that house sold in 2008 for, what was it, $3,500,000. I'm sure that the 10 shades of red in the living room were no longer there. <laughs> okay, so then they went ahead and spent another 100000 or so on servants, servants' quarters, swimming pool, fountains, Electricity. Um, Tell me this doesn't remind you of the La Petite Trianon. Okay, I just... No, it doesn't remind me of the Petite Trianon. It reminds me of the Hamo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Great minds think alike. I said, <laughs> this reminds me of Marie Antoinette's Hamo because the caretaker, the farmer, Hiram Beer, was hired because Dorothy thought his name was so awesomely farmy. Hiram Beer. She'd putter around, quote, gardening when it was really servants doing it, or, quote, cooking when it was a local lady doing it, or her husband. Um, she was playing Mrs. Campbell, Dorothy was, you know, with her giant hat, smoking like a chimney, and cutting all the flowers Mr. Beer had planted for the house, and six to twelve dogs following her, pooping everywhere. Ellen and she would leave town, and they would simply pour food in a dish and lock the door. And so when you came back, hygienically speaking, the house might not have been what it could be because you would, quote, skid all over the floor. Okay. She had a history of this, though. I mean, this is why she thought she took care of pets. I mean, when she was single and living in New York, she always had a dog. And she didn't always have time to take the dog out. Housekeeping, she, oh, domestic arts evaded her. She couldn't even, she didn't cook. She would eat bacon raw because she didn't know how to cook it. Ugh, I know! My mother-in-law eats raw hamburger. Not because she doesn't know how to cook it. She's a fine cook because she likes it. With salt. I don't, think I don't know. So. I've read it. I've read that somewhere. I don't eat it. But. Right out the package. Gee. I don't even know. That's crazy. So Dorothy took to sewing tiny baby clothes. What? What? Everyone in New York was like half horrified. They'd put down good money to see Dorothy's face the first time she saw a poopy diaper. <laughs> but it was true. It was true. Dorothy Parker was expecting. At 43. Just remember that. That's, like, that's extremely it's, advanced. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not so spring chickeny for now, but back then that was an extremely advanced age to have never had a child before. Right. And to be Dorothy Parker, who's lived a very hard, hard living life. She's been kind of cruel to her body. Well, so, okay. Roller coaster again. We're up going up the hill. Click, click, click. Glorious moods, happy self, contented Dorothy. This was probably literally the happiest she had ever been in her whole entire life. Before she was just kind of floundering. She just followed whatever was going to make her some money, whatever. Really? But now she, yeah, but now she has, it's yeah, a cocoon. Absolutely. Yes, Jace. Well, then she lost the baby and down with the coaster. Ooh, Dorothy mm -hmm. took it out on Alan, accusing him of being gay, of being a mama's boy, of having married her for her money in front of him, even. And she, wow, she went right back to far-left politics, but she got dragged behind the wagon, kind of, at this point. She took a radical far-left position. She had a passionate interest in the Spanish Civil War, even working to help refugees escape to the safety of Mexico. Um, she even went to report on the situation. She's very serious about this, and unfortunately came back to the U.S. to be sort of mocked for trying to be serious about something. Her reputation preceded her. She responded in classic Parker fashion by doubling down. If you didn't come up to her political standards, she would cut you. Not not cut as in, I will cut you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, that's kind of funny, actually. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, you were out. Bye bye. Yeah. That kind of cutting. Um, even Mr. Benchley, one of her oldest and truest friends, she felt didn't measure up. She hosted and facilitated a movie film festival fundraiser for old Ernest Hemingway to provide some relief. But this whole thing is a big old backfire. The word communist, innocent enough, back in just another party, became attached to Russian foreign policy. And how shall I put it? Traitor. I think there it remains. Honestly, in some circles, communist still equals traitor. So war began, and Alan volunteered to go. So husband number two, off to faraway places. Although he kind of did it digging. I mean, she was very mean to him, Mm -hmm. so he kind of dinged her back by going to officer school and going in as a captain. So he was, you know, in charge, and uh, which kind of pissed her off a little bit. But. Well, and at 50, Dorothy tried to volunteer for the wax. You know, too old. Sorry, sis. And she even said, well, I was premature, though. So technically, I have another month, and I just made the deadline. And they're like, yeah, no. No, no, no. So she tried to become a war correspondent, but nerp. The government blocked her passport. Huh. You know, not because she was a communist exactly for that was actually just a political party, right? But because she was a, quote, premature anti-fascist. A path, they said. Mm -hmm. That was the way to keep out the communists, since they couldn't really officially keep out the communists. Right. That's their little, like, characteristic that would prove you were a communist. She had picked the right side years ahead of time, so that's so strange to me. Mm-hmm. But I guess there's figure if you are, like, so hooked into what the Russians want to do with their politics, maybe once they're not our friend anymore and they remain our enemy, we don't want you to have all these war secrets. Maybe they're thinking, like, Sleep you know what? Kind of. Yeah. I'm thinking that's their rationale. Yeah. Because, like, who's not against the Nazis, really? Right, yeah. So so to have that be the thing that keeps you out seemed mm-hmm. weird to me until I just started to think about, like, oh, it was the pro-Russia thing Yeah, that really kept you out. Yeah, and she was, her, her name kept popping up on every list. Ugh. She was kind of loud. <laughs> and then she wrote an article for Vogue magazine that from her past experience with Eddie, her first husband, warned women what they were facing when their soldiers came home from war. And I've read it. And it sounds like good advice. And, you know, realistic. Mm-hmm. And she was skewered for it. Yeah, you don't want to think about that. You just want to think about the boys being brave and fighting for our country. You don't want to... Well, Reader's Digest got a hold of it and serialized it and sent it all into every lower middle class and middle class home in America. And it was like, unpatriotic. Something is wrong with her. These boys are fighting for the people back home and you're not going to be sunny and cheerful and what are they fighting for is useless and blah, blah, blah. And you know, you cannot care all you want because Dorothy Parker kind of didn't give one... Crap what Reader's Digest had to say, uh-huh. what's that? Yeah. But when people call you, quote, obviously mentally ill in public, it's really got to hurt. Especially if you think you might be. I know. <laughs> and you think you might be covering for it. Can you imagine what her life would have been like if the internet had been alive? <laughs> I mean, if they did this just through letters, pretty much. Wow. I know. Well, she flew into hysterics kind of at a rumored affair that Alan was having over in Europe. A boy, a girl, made up. Did you read anywhere that it was an actual affair? I actually did read that there was an actual affair with a married woman in London. Well, it almost seems like this is a preemptive strike. And Casey came back changed, just cut it now. Which, you know, not even going to work on it. Not nothing. Just it seems destructive to me again. Just like preventing what happened last time from happening again. Right. Forget you. Goodbye. Yes. So they did divorce in 1947. Au revoir, Alan. Well, he didn't actually hurry back from the war. I know. He was dinking around in Europe. Presumably with this woman. Well, she had been super mean and embarrassing to him. So she picked up another handsome and ruthless man named Ross Evans. And after two years of more failed writing this winter took her to the airport in Mexico City and ran off with another woman. He dropped her off and left at the airport in Mexico City. Ah, Dot. She got back to New York with nothing. No self-respect, certainly. No career. No round table. In fact, no Mr. Benchley, who had died. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Bleak. I'm feeling bleak right now. A little bleak. (laughs) Well, it is. It's very bleak. What part of her life isn't really... I mean, she had, like, little spikes of happy... And then she, for the most part, it falls below the happiness line. 
So let's leave Dorothy having arrived with a little suitcase back in New York City after her sojourn in Mexico. She's starting from zero again, like she's doing so many times in her life. Something has ended. What is coming next? We'll find out after the break. Parker has landed in New York with no self-respect and really nothing to her name. No self-respect, no money, no family. She called ex-husband Alan. It's a Hail Mary. They remarried, much to everyone's surprise. They were divorced in 47 and then remarried in 50. But it was the middle of the Red Scare era, and Dorothy Parker was still blacklisted in Hollywood due to all those activities way back in the day. Her communist past just wouldn't go away, and it followed her even through all of these perambulations across the country. At one point, at several points, she was subpoenaed and questioned by the FBI, and she said, listen, I can't even get my dog to stay down. Do I look like someone who could overthrow a government? So she was interrogated. Um, ultimately, she took the fifth when asked if she was a member of the party. The fifth says, I'm not going to tell you because it might incriminate myself. That's when she was legitimately blacklisted. Um, although the official verdict on her testimony was, while she could technically qualify for inclusion in the security index, it is not felt she is dangerous enough to warrant it. This person is not linear enough to get to pay attention to anything for more than 30 minutes. <laughs> Which was actually, you know, considering the people that were put on the index and arrested and had some serious consequences, like arrested, oh my gosh, they're coming to put us on the security index for, I don't know, <laughs> life in the city, man. The husband of a known communist could not get hired either. And it was too stressful for people who already argued all the time. <laughs> and Dorothy Parker peace outed to New York City, where she lived in the Volney Hotel off Madison in the East 70s. Dorothy Parker got a dog to talk to, because Alan didn't come with her to New York, a dog named Misty. Aren't you lonely? Oh, no, Misty has 43 dogs in this hotel to play with. It's like, that's not really what we asked you, but okay. So she wrote what was really basically an autobiographical fear play about single women reduced to living in a small, nondescript hotel and how hopeless it was. It's called The Ladies of the Corridor. And it wasn't really a hit because basically it was vignettes. It was like a series of short stories, which play well as short stories, but maybe don't jibe too well on the stage. But it wasn't a hit, but Dorothy Parker called it the only thing I was ever proud of. And then, you know, there she was living it in life. Merry Christmas. You evidently have the gift of prophecy. <laughs> Yay. She was not often sober. She made no attempt to decorate her apartment, no attempt to clean up Misty's poo bombs, but that should come as no surprise as I don't think she's ever picked up a poo bomb no. in her whole life. She'd be rude to people that stopped by if she wasn't completely blotto, and frenemy Lillian Hellman described her during this period as having, quote, Moved firmly from eccentricity to frightening strangeness. <laughs> there was a intrepid reporter that came and recorded Dorothy reading a lot of her own material called The World of Dorothy Parker, which you can listen to lots of excerpts on YouTube. Right. In her own voice. Yes. Uh, they must have caught her before the whiskey sour breakfast. She's because a she has slow, though. Her speech, it, you know, it, she has that upper crust... East Coast accent going on, uh, but she does speak a little slowly. <laughs> yeah, I thought her voice was kind of cool, actually. Alan came along. 
See, she's always got these knights in shining armor appearing when she has reached bottom. I don't even know. Alan appeared and took her back to Hollywood. And they did live together. It was more like uh, best friend roommates, I would say. But um, at that point, she was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She got an actual job as a visiting professor at California State College in Los Angeles, a job which she hated and was very vocal about hating, and uh, it kind of bit her in her butt. So she kind of did that for one year. <laughs> That's it. Well, I'm just saying. You <laughs> That's all she a, could do. You get a good thing. You start sniping at it until it goes away. Yeah, exactly. That's Dorothy Parker's M.O. Well, they lived a rackety old has-been kind of life. If there have been Hollywood squares, oh, would she have been a good set of square. <laughs> Not really working, pottering around and drinking and drinking, always the drinking. One day, they had been at the bottles for a while, and each took some sleeping pills. Normal enough. But in the morning, Alan, I'm sorry to say, was dead. More of an accidental overdose. Slow suicide, I guess. We can't pretend that this drinking lifestyle was healthy for him. No. Rather than a desire to end it all, it just kind of happened by circumstance. So um, that's husband number two and three. Husband number one suicide. I mean, technically suicide because he did take the pill. Accidental suicide, I guess. Yeah. We caught that. So uh, here's a little quote, a little spark of old Dorothy Parker. This fake friend, you know how people always like run over wanting to associate themselves with the tragedy kind of? So this fake neighbory friend came over. What can I do? And Dorothy Parker, who could see through people like they were transparent, said, get me a new husband. And the friend was so horrified, as Dorothy Parker meant her to be. And then Dorothy just goes, oh, okay, then just go down to the sandwich store in the corner. And I want a ham and cheese on rye. Tell him to hold the mail. Like, if you want to chase people away, Carl, you got it. Yeah. So, the end game takes place in New York. As many end games do. Reporters kept tracking her down at her undecorated apartment with, you know, really nothing in it. These... Statues of Napoleon's generals that they had jokingly bought at a some kind of jumble sale or estate sale, and they thought were so hilarious. Like, why would anyone ever have these? And she took them everywhere with her. So that's like the only personal that's, thing she had. That and a dog. Now, you think back, you know, remember when we were kids and we thought, Grandma's so old, and then we realized Grandma was only 70. We're like, oh, 70 is not that old. Dorothy Parker at 70 looked seriously old. She looked like a 100. She was 80 pounds. Her eyesight was bad. She was still getting herself tipsy. Uh, She's spending a lot of time in the hospital from falls, not necessarily always from drinking. But she was a very frail woman, not in a good health. But you know what? 70 years of hard living might do that to you. I was going to say 70 years of pickling yourself in assorted levels <laughs> of alcohol. I think it might be a preservative, but no, not really. Um, People were very interested in the glory days of the Algonquin Roundtable. And they were so interested in Dorothy Parker. And oh, were they surprised when they encountered <laughs> the shadow of her former self that she was. And she would tell them her regrets or her what am I saying, bad feelings, how her perspective had changed on the Algonquin days. We weren't anything. We were just wisecrackers, thinking we were so great. We weren't great. Hemingway, he was great. Faulkner, not us. We were nothing but a silly mutual admiration society. She uh, loved keeping up with current events, though. Like, a lot of the time she was confused and bewildered by the 50 years of alcohol, but the the civil rights movement just thrilled her. Martin Luther King in particular, she was so interested in reading anything associated with Martin Luther King. The Kennedys, she said they were very dignified. She was really admiring them. They acted like people with money should act. As for the party people, you know, the jet set or the beautiful people or whatever, she goes, whoa, they make me so sick, but I just love reading about them. I love her. Yeah, It was her. It I was mean, her. That's, you know, she got to live from the outside looking in. Yeah. You know, different perspective. So Dorothy Parker got sicker and sicker and sicker. She was really left with just two friends. Beatrice Ames, we haven't mentioned her before, I'm sorry. She came in quietly during the Algonquin years. Forty-some years ago, she was one of those types of friends that you don't see for years. You might not see for decades. But as soon as you meet up again, it's just where you left off. Like those kind of friends. I love those friends. You're not hanging out all the time. Yeah. But you're, yeah. you know, you're there. And then the playwright, Lillian Hellman. Frenemy playwright, <laughs> Lillian Hellman. Yes. 
Okay, we say she's a frenemy, but get this. Once upon a time, Dorothy had given Lillian Hellman a Picasso. Lillian Hellman sold that painting for $10,000 and came and found her to give her a check for $10,000. She did not have to do that. No, and a lot of people helped support Dorothy during these years. You know, it kind of reminded me back of Dolly Madison towards the end of her life when people who she had befriended through life kind of supported her through the end of it. It was pretty much the same, you know, helping to pay her hospital bills and liquor store bills. <laughs> well, and I will tell you that Dorothy lost that check almost the second she got yeah. it. Yeah. So, you know, and one of the last things anyone ever heard her say was so intriguing to me. To Beatrice Ames, tell me, she said, did Ernest really like me? Hemingway. Is what was on her mind after all this time. She admired him and had been exasperated by him uh, for a long time. Did Ernest really like me? She said. Hmm. And of course he didn't. But Beatrice said, oh yes, you know, he thought you were a great writer. Maybe she had everything else answered. You know, everything else in her life. Because at that point she's probably reflecting about her whole life. And that was just an untied bow. On June 7th, 1967, a chambermaid came into her room and found her dead on the floor. It was a heart attack. She was 73 years old. In going through her things, people did find that $10,000 check and quite a few more like that. Seven or eight big, uncashed checks that could have made her life so much easier. She is so weird about money. She's so weird about money. She had a couple bank accounts with some money in them. I mean, not... Millions, but... And then here's Beatrice, like, giving her a dollar fifty for a taxi for the ride home and feeding her for the past, the last three months of her life. I think Beatrice made all those meals or else Dorothy wouldn't have eaten. And and so here's this person, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, a dollar fifty she couldn't lay her hands on, but then there's, like, all these checks laying around. Uh, It's just so (laughs) crazy to me. Now, before she had died... She did run towards the end. I mean, it was like a last-minute thing. She did have a, a will written up, and she left her entire estate. That would be the bank accounts, um, the shares in the New Yorker, copyrights, and royalties, which people didn't realize she had any money. She did have some. No, it wasn't a huge amount, but it was significant. Well, the publishing rights alone. Exactly. Uh, you know, or a future stock. Right, money. exactly. She left all of that. To Martin Luther King Jr. You guys. Who she had never met. Never. Never met. She admired what he was doing, and Mm -hmm. she thought he needed some money. She didn't think that Lillian Hellman needed any money, although Lillian Hellman thought she did. Lillian was put in as the executor of the will. Dorothy said she did not want a funeral. See, because I don't think Lillian Hellman realized. This is the thing. I don't Mm -hmm. think Lillian Hellman realized she hadn't been left the money. Right. Until after the funeral. Dorothy Parker said she did not want to have a funeral. Lillian Hellman insisted we cannot send her off with nothing. We are going to have, in defiance of her wishes, a funeral. And so the first eulogist said, I'm sure Dorothy would prefer not having to turn up here at all. Because he knew. And the second eulogy, I think we should leave for the closing of the show, what Lillian Hellman said in all sincerity, and it is a good send-off, but Lillian wanted Lillian to be the center of attention at this grand event because Lillian Hellman was about to receive the benefit of Dorothy Parker's literary rights and her destiny. But no, she left it all to Martin Luther King Jr. And she stipulated that upon his death, it would all go to... The NAACP. Lillian literally could not believe this had just happened. She contested it in court. Martin Luther King won. He kind of took it on like I had prayed for money and it came. Now, (laughs) Lillian Hellman, of course, goes, well, she must have been drunk. (laughs) Well, that's a reasonable. Yes, probably. (laughs) Yeah. If you throw a dart at any day on any calendar (laughs) the past 50 years of Dorothy Parker's life, she was probably drunk. So, Lillian Hellman did not tell the funeral home where to send Dorothy's ashes. Oh, is that some kind of punishment or something? So eventually, six years after she died, the funeral home, not having another address in their possession, mailed the ashes to Paul O'Dwyer's office, her lawyer. The only address they had was her lawyer. And he had the box on his desk for a while. And he put it in a file cabinet. He put it in a file cabinet (laughs) where it stayed for 15 years. Now, when Martin Luther King had been assassinated, at his death, all the rights were to devolve to the NAACP. And when it came out in 1980, 
Eight. In the media, the Dorothy Parker's ashes are sitting in a box in a filing cabinet. The NAACP stepped in and built a memorial to her on their national headquarters grounds in Baltimore, Maryland, where it still stands. And over the years, she, like we had said a long time ago, she'd been asked to write in her tombstone, and she had said, excuse my dust, and it does actually appear on her memorial plaque. The plaque is round to pay homage to the round table, and it says... Here lie the ashes of Dorothy Parker, 1893 to 1967. Humorist, writer, critic, defender of human and civil rights. For her epitaph, she suggested, excuse my dust. It's interesting to me um, that it mentions the bonds of friendship everlasting between black and Jewish people. Which, uh, I don't know that during the 80s that was necessarily true, but she had written a story, I mean, way back in the 20s called Arrangement in Black and White. And it was more, oh, it's so cringy. You have to I know. It's so cringy. It's all about this blonde, assisted blonde, I even think it says. <laughs> yeah. Like, not even a real blonde. Um, condescending to talk to a, as the term was, colored entertainer who was super famous and everyone was so delighted to have met, but she condescended to him the whole time. And I, I think it might have stemmed from that far back that she realized, like, what hypocrisy and what, what the heck is going on in this country? So I don't know if it was, like, the Jewish people necessarily, but she really was an early adopter. Oh, yeah. For a lot of things. Well, and she said about racism... Way back, she said, I knew it need not be so. I think I knew even then that it would eventually not be so. Oh, my goodness. What a roller coaster that was. <laughs> uh, now, it is time for some media recommendations. First off, let's head to the web. Uh, the Dorothy Parker Society at DorothyParker.com is the first place you need to go. It is the Dorothy Parker fandom. It's run by Parker expert Kevin Fitzpatrick. And it's a very well done site. It's fun. Um, but what, the society does not have meetings. We have parties. So that's kind of sums them up. And on her birthday this year, if you are in the environs of New York, uh, on her birthday, August 22nd, this year, which is 2015, <laughs> if you're listening to it in future years, I hope they have a repeat. There is a walking tour of Dorothy Parker's New York with a party, of course, afterward <laughs> at the distillery that makes Dorothy Parker gin in Brooklyn. Um, the details are over at DorothyParker.com, and if you go, take a flask of scotch and send us a photo. We would love that. There are quite a few good articles from her old haunt, Vanity Fair, uh, from 1999. There's a good one. Uh, we'll just link rather than recite them here. Do you want to hear a rabbit hole? Because I fell down a rabbit hole. Okay, yes, because I, I fell down several. Go uh, on. What's on the menu, which I have referred to before. What's oh, yeah. on the menu is a collection of historical menus that the New York Public Library has been trying by crowdsourcing independent editors to digitize and put on the Internet and make available. And the closest one, not very close at all, there is one from the Algonquin from 1964. Not the same at all. And there's a dinner for Calvin Coolidge from the 1920s, but that's not really the menu Dorothy Parker would have seen either. Although, when Calvin Coolidge died, Dorothy Parker goes, how could they tell? Because he was notorious for being kind of blank. <laughs> um, but there's lots of other 1920s menus to get a feel for what was available. You know, she always ordered the eggs because they were the cheapest protein on the menu. <laughs> so um, click, click, click. Where did all the time go? You can get sucked down. Do you want to hear my rabbit hole? Absolutely. Quote investigator. Oh, my gosh. I love this guy. Uh, his name is Garrison O'Toole. We'll link you up on our show notes. Um, he painstakingly researches quotes, not just Dorothy Parker, obviously, but he's been at this a very long time. And there's so many people that you can re just go, oh, I've heard them, and then go to their page and see what he's dug up. I mean, it's painfully researched. It's beautiful. I fell down there for a very, very long time. And on YouTube, there is an entire special called The Ten-Year Lunch about the Algonquin Roundtable and the denizens of such. Uh, it's about an hour long, believe it or not. And it's kind of got 80s production values, so don't be dismayed. But it's really neat to hear about Wolcott and Benchley and all the other people that you kind of need to know about to know about her story. Do you want to talk about the movie and then go to books or... Oh, sure. Um, actually, I want to talk about places for a second. Oh, okay, go ahead. 
The Algonquin Hotel is still there. (laughs) At 59 West 44th Street, it is owned by Marriott. So I don't know if the glamour has exactly left the building, but the authenticity might have left the building. I don't know. There was a massive refurbish of it in 2002. So there's a giant painting of the Vicious Circle um, down there in the restaurant by Natalie Ascensions. We'll put it on the Pinterest. Then there is annually Dorothy Parker Day in Long Branch, New Jersey, where she was born uh, in the summer house with the famous dog parade where you dress up your dog and walk it along. It's an annual event. That's quite fitting. It is quite fitting, especially if you could have a go cup in your hand. <laughs> I think that's probably, um, I don't even care if it's illegal. I bet nobody bats an eye. Probably not. Now, this movie, what do we say? <laughs> this movie. Mm-mm. Okay, it's kind of hard to find. So you might not want to watch it, but Mrs. Parker in the Vicious Circle is from 1994, and I didn't find it on my usual internet channels. I had to actually buy it from Amazon. <laughs> well, you know, rent it. Oh, I, I was like, oh it. dear, but you I paid for it. Just squandered your money. <laughs> it wasn't that much. And I know, if I was a Prime member, it would have been free, whatever. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is cast as Dorothy Parker. And she's good at it until she isn't. And I think that she got her accent, which is extremely affected, and I don't think her diction coach did a very good job, um, from the the YouTube videos of radio shows that we had talked about earlier, because it's very affected and slow. It's just a great movie to see the people, to see the players. Yes, I guess that's true. Now, have you ever seen the movie The Hud Sucker Proxy? Because she's got the same (laughs) accent in that movie. So, Susan is more optimistic. I would prefer not to have seen it. Um, I am sad to say there is another. This wasn't even a near miss for me. This was just a flat out, should be hurled with great force against the wall, etc. But she almost appeared in a movie she wrote or co-wrote, Saboteur. It's a Hitchcock movie. And you know, Hitchcock always appears in his own movies in a little cameo. And his plan was that he, himself, Mr. Hitchcock, would be driving along as a witness to something, and his wife, Dorothy Parker, would be in a wordless cameo sitting beside him, and it was like going to be the funniest Easter egg to find her in the movie. Upon reflection, he thought that whole thing was a little distracting. And took away from his message, so he cut that whole thing out and provided himself with a different cameo. So that's a little bit of a bummer. I wish we could have found that footage, because wouldn't that be funny? They did film it. Yeah. They filmed it. Yeah. But she's not in the finished copy. Yeah, I didn't find any film footage of her at all. Surely there might be something, a film yeah. reel or something that it. exists, but I couldn't find audio, not video. So, um, okay, so, uh-uh, I oh, hear a, a thing coming. Hold on. Okay. I don't know, that's fine. Is this like an everyday thing? (laughs) Oh, what? It's like an every 30 minutes thing. Are you kidding me? We live in the country. (laughs) There's helicopters at night, too, all over. Yeah, we have helicopters sometimes. Oh, we're in the flight pattern for the airport. <laughs> well, um, here's the thing you need to know. If they're going in a straight line, they're going to the hospital. And if they're going in a circle, they're from the police department. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, there is a little tie to something that I am currently obsessed with. The production company for the Gilmore Girls showrunner, Amy Sherman Palladino, uh, is called Dorothy Parker Drank Here. Also, fans of Rory Gilmore, the daughter, will know that during season one, she famously is reading the portable Dorothy Parker, which is another thing I highly recommend that you read. Oh, yes. Go out right now and get it. It's big. It is big. But, and even if you skip around in it. I am going to need to put a link to the Rory Gilmore reading challenge. Because there, that girl is a reader, and um, you might as well start with this one, the portable Dorothy Parker. You might as well start with that because it's on the list. I don't. It's not light beach reading though. It's gonna bring you down. Maybe yeah. on a rainy day on your vacation, like so you're already feeling grumpy. Just like go ahead and deepen it up. But if you are looking for light beach reads, there are two books out there that I am going to go ahead and recommend. They are 
Um, they're fiction, but I guess I would call them uh, historical contemporary fiction. Um, they are Farewell Dorothy Parker and Dorothy Parker Drank Here by Ellen Meister. They take Dorothy Parker, make her a ghost in the Algonquin, and put her with contemporary women. I, I thought they were very fun reads. I do think that you should read the second book, which just came out in July of 2015, um, Dorothy Parker Drank Here. Read that first because it actually predates the first one that was written. But I think that they're really, really fun reads, and um, I enjoyed them both. I read the whole thing. You know, I'm glad you reminded me of something, because I learned from our friends over at the Bowery Boys, who have not done a show on the Algonquin, not yet, anyway, they did do, um, I think back in 2008, an episode called Spooky Stories of New York. I love Spooky Stories of New York. <laughs> they do that every Halloween. Yeah. And Dorothy Parker is famed to haunt the Algonquin Hotel. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, Ellen Meister is obviously an expert on her because she works, you have to know Dorothy, you can enjoy them anyway, but if you know the story of Dorothy Parker and know a lot of her quotes and a lot of her eccentricities, they are, she weaves them into the story. Some of them better than others, but they're all there. So I thought that was super fun. Or if you've just listened to a little podcast called The History Chicks and yeah. learned enough about yeah, Dorothy I think, Parker. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of them that are in here. So, so I yeah. think Hereby Everyone's Authorized. Yeah, go, go get Dorothy Parker drink here and read that. Excellent. Perfect beach read. <laughs> so the, um, I'm going to keep the book thing to a minimum, the portable Dorothy Parker. Also, there is A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York by Kevin Fitzpatrick, who is the president of the Dorothy Parker Society. He would know better than anyone. He's also, I'm sure he'll be there, if not conducting the tours in New York on the August 22nd. I really appreciate it. He set us straight on the scotch versus gin. Scotch, he says, is is better for Casual imbibing on a scale. <laughs> Dorothy Parker, we need. He, you know, he made a good point. Jen was really bad during Prohibition, so maybe Scotch. Yeah, and actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna defend Ellen Meister in here because she has Dorothy drinking a lot of gin and tonics, but in the author's notes, she says she realizes that Scotch was her drink, but gin and tonics fit better with the story. <laughs> See, there you go. So it's yeah. all well to depart if you know what you're departing from. That's right. So, John Keats, not the John Keats, obviously, that would be a miracle of time travel, wrote a biography called You Might As Well Live, which is very readable, I do believe. Um, suitable for one, I mean, it oh, sure smells like an old library book, too. Man, it smells good. But uh, <laughs> that's a, that was my favorite of the biographies. It's from 1970. The one that I liked the most, and I actually bought it. I mean, like, I didn't rent it <laughs> or borrow it from the library, it is uh, Marion Mead's uh, Dorothy Parker, What Fresh Hell Is This?, which is a very long book. And there's, even though we just have two episodes of this, her story, there's so much more that we just couldn't get in. That title comes from a famous quote she supposedly said when someone just rang the doorbell. What fresh hell is this? <laughs> we should all start using it if we haven't already. And I am going to actually, this one is another one by Marion Mead, and it is actually, I think, a good beach read. It's Bob's Hair and Bathtub Gin. It's a story of Zelda Fitzgerald, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Dorothy Parker, and Edna Ferber. And their stories are all intertwined. It reads an awful lot like fiction when it's not. So uh, this is, I, yeah, I thought this was a this was a fun book to read, too. Now, I'm sorry I didn't write the name down, but that same Kevin Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. has written a cocktail guide. Yes. Dorothy yes. Parker Cocktail Guide. I, I'm sorry to say that I didn't write down the actual name. I put it in the No, list. I'll find it. Yeah, I, I saw it, too. And I was going to um, get it, except it's drinks of the era, not necessarily exactly Dorothy drinks. But I think that there's some history of Dorothy peppered throughout it, and it makes me ask, where's my cocktail? Oh, ho. We have cocktails. We're going to, we'll post a picture of ourselves enjoying cocktail. Um, Susan has gone more um, authentic, shall we say, yeah. uh, with scotch. And I've decided to um, defy reality and in an homage to the fiction slash romance that has followed the gin martini, I will be enjoying a gin martini. <laughs> Mostly because I don't think I can drink scotch at 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> and 
Um, we have to say that there is a little noise in the background, and that is my 10-year-old son who will be drinking Dr. Pepper. <laughs> we'll leave you with the eulogy that Lillian Hellman delivered at Dorothy Parker's funeral. Gulping what we called a watered extract of scotch, she'd put aside the gentle manner and let fly, and then I would roar with laughter that always ended in sober recognition that the joke hid a brilliant diagnosis of people or places or customs or life. The remarkable quality of Dorothy Parker's wit was that it stayed in no place and was of no time. Dorothy never spoke of old glories, never repented old defeats, never rested on times long ago. Dorothy Parker was brave in deprivation, in the chivying she took during the McCarthy days, in the isolation of the last bad sick years. She was part of nothing and nobody except herself. And it was this independence of mind and spirit that was her true distinction. Thanks for listening. Bye. Follow us in all the places, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Clamor at The History Chicks. And on Twitter, it's The History Chicks with an X. Tell a few friends about us, or see if you can get Meryl Streep to listen to the show. And visit the website at thehistorychicks.com for all the links we mentioned today.